Good morning. It's really good to be with you this morning. It's a great time of uh, worship and song and uh, coming together. It's always uh, um, it's inspiring in a way to see the uh, greeting time from up in the uh, sound booth. I'm usually wandering around up there and uh, the uh, level of energy as you uh, greet each other is, uh, is an act of worship too. So all kinds of good sounds already uh, here today worshiping our God. And uh, we continue in that vein of worship uh, as we come to listen to God's voice now, as we listen to the scriptures and as we think about uh, his voice to us uh, in that word. Um, would you bow your heads with me, please, as we ask for his help to do that? <clears throat> Our Lord uh, Jesus, thank you that you are a God who speaks to us. Thank you that you have always spoken to your people. Lord, I pray that today you would help us to hear you, not just to think about you, not just to reflect on you, but to hear your voice stirring within us, uh, to hear your voice uh, calling our name, to hear your voice inviting us into a deeper and more profound relationship with you. Lord, do all of those things. Um, in a way that brings glory to yourself, in a way that helps us to shine differently in this world uh, so that others will also see you and glorify your name. Lord, you are our living and powerful and majestic God, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to uh, look at a couple of Old Testament texts with you today. Uh, first of all, in Exodus chapter 3, a famous uh, episode in the uh, scriptures, uh, even if you are not normally a person who is familiar with the Bible or in church, uh, this is a story that uh, most of our culture still is aware of. Uh, we sometimes have the, um, the, the phrase or the image of sort of a burning bush moment, and uh, this is the burning bush. So Exodus chapter 3, one day... Uh, Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And Moses went deep into the wilderness near Sinai, the mountain of God. We're going to look in our second passage at um, that mountain a little bit more closely. Suddenly, the angel of the Lord appeared to him as a blazing fire in a bush. And Moses was amazed because the bush was engulfed in flames, but it didn't burn up. Amazing, Moses said to himself. Why isn't that bush burning up? I must go over to see this. And when the Lord saw that he had Moses' attention, God called to him from the bush, Moses, Moses. Here I am, Moses replied. Don't come any closer, God told him. Take off your sandals, <coughs> for you are standing on holy ground. Uh, then he said, I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And when Moses heard this, he hid his face in his hands because he was afraid to look at the face of God. Uh, then the Lord told him, uh, you can be sure that I have seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries for deliverance from their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I'm aware of their suffering. So I have come to rescue them from the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt into their own good and spacious land. It is a land flowing with milk and honey, the land where the Canaanites, and Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites live. 
The cries of the people of Israel have reached me, and I have seen how the Egyptians have oppressed them with heavy tasks. Now go, for I am sending you to Pharaoh. You will lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But who am I to appear before the Pharaoh? Moses asked God. How can you expect me to lead the Israelites out of Egypt? Then God told him, I will be with you, and this will serve as proof that I have sent you. When you have brought the Israelites out of Egypt, you will return here to worship God at this very mountain. But Moses protested, If I go to the people of Israel and tell them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they won't believe me. They will ask, Which God are you talking about? What is his name? Then what should I tell them? And God replied, I am the one who always is. Just tell them, I am has sent me to you. And God also said, tell them, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This will be my name forever. It has always been my name, and it will always be used throughout all generations. And we'll ask God to bless this reading, his holy and inspired word. Amen. We are in the midst of a short mini-series. I'm not sure what qualifies a series as mini versus full-grown, but this is a mini-series on the greatness of God. God is great. Uh, many of us um, grew up in homes where we uh, recited that phrase as a part of our uh, table prayers. God is great. Uh, God is good. God is great, and uh, it's important for us once in a while to pause and to reflect on the greatness of God. And so last week we spent some time together uh, thinking about the idea that God's majesty and God's glory are so immense and so unchanging that there is almost a sense in which God is indifferent towards you. Uh, God's glory and God's majesty is so immense, so unflinching, that there's almost a sense in which God is indifferent to you. In the way that the glory of a sunset is indifferent to whether or not you are there to enjoy it. Uh, God does not exist to please you. God is not your helpful buddy. God is not the solution to your problems. He doesn't answer to his creatures. God is God. And so last week we saw how it was that Job came to God with his problems and with his complaints. And the problems and complaints that Job was facing were immense for Job. They were massive. They were life-changing, life-altering challenges that Job was up against. And he comes to God over and over and over again, pleading his case before God. And God doesn't answer, and God doesn't answer, and God doesn't answer. And then last week we saw that finally when God answers, God basically says to Job, and just who do you think you are? Who are you? I am God. And in that response, something healing happens to Job. And he's at peace. Somehow, God's indifference, the indifference of God's majesty, the indifference of God's glory, draws us out of ourselves, gets us beyond ourselves. And we find some healing, and we find hope. 
This morning we're going to look at a second ancient idea about God. And this is an idea that reminds us that God is beyond our language. God cannot be captured by our words. God is never controlled by what we say. Sometime around the uh, 4th century, early church fathers, early church theologians, began observing the limitations of our language, of all human language, when it comes to describing God, either in uh, the discipline of theology or in the exchange of prayer. Uh, They began to notice how all of our words are limited. Language is finite, and God is infinite. So writers and thinkers and theologians like Gregory the Great and Dionysius and Gregory of Nyssa um, give us this sort of slice of our shared theological heritage that sometimes we call apophatic theology. Apophatic theology, the apophatic tradition. And apophatic just simply means beyond an image, beyond images including beyond the images that we create in our mind and that we create in the minds of others through the words and the metaphors and the language that we use to create uh, pictures of God. God is beyond images, not contained by them. Last Sunday, after our worship service, uh, I bolted out of here pretty quick. Uh, even beat some of you out to my car and left. And uh, I made my way up north to visit Hannah up at uh, Michigan Tech. Got in my car and uh, drove north. And I hit the Lake Superior shoreline just as the angle of the sun on the horizon began to light up the landscape with a spectacular brilliance. The waters of the Great Lake were a rich cobalt blue with just a little white frosting of whitecap. The trees were nearing their peak color. There was a mist in the air, not quite a fog and not quite a rain, but a mist that made all of the hues just pop and made the rock formations glisten. It was an awesome visual display. And there were a number of moments, a number of times where I was tempted to stop my car and get out and take a picture. Capture that. And every time I started to slow down and look for a turnout and look for a scenic overview, I I would just keep going because I realized that there there was something futile about that. There's no way that a picture uh, can capture that grandeur. No picture can convey the totality of the experience. Because the full emotional impact of that drive went beyond just the visual senses. Uh, There is a little bite of chill in the air. When you were having 80-degree weather, we were having 40-degree weather. There were snowflakes the night before. Uh, There was within me sort of the eager anticipation of getting to see Hannah again and spend some treasured time with her. Uh, There were memories churning through my mind of previous fall seasons. 
falls that took me all the way back to a little neighborhood in Wyoming, Michigan, on Loxley Street, where my dad would rake leaves into a great mountain. At that time, you could still burn leaves in your yard. Before the leaves were to be burned, I would run as fast as I could, and often I would have a my mother's apron uh, around my neck as my superhero cape, and I would launch myself into this mountain of leaves and get buried beneath them, and my lab pepper would dive in after me, thinking about falls past. Cracked my window down a little bit, and the smell of wood smoke coming from a nearby chimney made its way into my car cranked up the sounds of journey on my radio. (laughs) Sipped gingerly some hot, dark roasted coffee. It's a full experience that was at once inspiring and poignant and sad and hopeful and so utterly beyond a picture. Beyond an image, apophatic. You have had apophatic experiences of your own. Maybe your own encounter with nature. Maybe sitting around a particularly delicious meal, savoring the flavors of the food and enjoying the depths of conversation and connection with family and friends has left you felt full and satisfied, not just physically, but spiritually. And it's somehow just outside of our grasp to describe. It's beyond a word. It's beyond an image. It's beyond a picture. A picture of your family at Thanksgiving doesn't capture Thanksgiving with your family. Right? It's apophatic. And what these early theologians began to see was true was that if our encounters with nature, our encounters with creation, can evoke that sense of transcendence in our soul, how much more an encounter with the Creator? In our story, Moses is being commissioned to undertake the defining role of his life. He's becoming an elderly man by this point. He had already had many adventures. He had already had many misadventures. He's a fugitive, wanted by the law. He has rags to riches to rags. story had already been told, and now his life is about to be defined. And it will be the defining moment in the life of the Hebrew people. The Hebrew people, the Israelites, will tell this story from that day to this day. And when Jesus reaches for images to describe his story, he will grab a hold of the images in the words of the Exodus. And so as Moses prepares to launch into this defining moment in his life. He meets God. God reveals himself as a fire. But it's a fire that doesn't consume. 
This is not your traditional exothermic reaction. This is a fire without combustion. And we understand that's bizarre and odd and unusual and maybe even impossible. And Moses understands it as well. And he records his reaction as one of wonderment and amazement. He's puzzled. How can this bush not be consumed by that fire? He knows what fire is supposed to do. God is already revealing himself as an image in a picture that isn't contained in our language. It defies our words. Later, there's an exchange as Moses listens to what God wants. He finally asks, and just who are you? What is your name, God? Moses asks God's name. It's not just idle curiosity. What Moses is really asking is, can I trust what you're saying? Can I trust you? What Moses uh, knows is that in the Old Testament times, a name revealed something about the person. A name revealed something about the character of the person, something about the personality. The story of the person is captured in the name, and a name defined who you were. When Moses says, who are you? What's your name? He's asking for God's resume. Are you qualified for this position? And God responds with a name that we struggle today to understand. The grammar of our language and the grammar of the Hebrew language strains to contain it. In fact, uh, most Bibles have footnotes at this point, right? Uh, this, this verse uh, where God describes his name in chapter 3, uh, verse 14 and then 15, uh, is heavily footnoted. Sometimes people say, well, this means I am, and sometimes it means I was, and I will be, and I always will be. Uh, one of the most compelling translations of this name uh, is, is that God says, I am the ising one. I am the ising one. I am ising. We don't have grammar for that. We don't have words for God's name for God's character, for God's essence. Our grammar can't contain it. When God speaks his name, it is both a promise of his presence and it's a way of hiding beyond the ability of our language to capture or control or define him. A little bit later, Moses fulfills this commission, and he brings the Hebrew people back to the foot of Mount Sinai. And as they come back to the foot of Mount Sinai, this scene unfolds, beginning in Exodus 19, verse 14. So Moses went down to the people. He purified for them for worship and told them uh, to wash their clothing. He said, get ready for an important event two days from now, and until then, uh, abstain from sexual intercourse. On the morning of the third day, there was a powerful thunder and lightning storm, and a dense cloud came down upon the mountain. Uh, some translations describe that as impenetrable darkness. There was a long, loud blast from a ram's horn, and all of the people trembled. 
Moses led them out of the camp to meet God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. And all Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it in the form of fire. He reveals himself on the mountain again. He reveals himself and yet obscures himself. He is present and yet hidden at the same time. The apophatic tradition urges us to understand that while words may reveal something about God, they conceal even more. Uh, we use word pictures or metaphors or images to try to talk about who God is. Uh, sometimes we'll say, uh, along with Scripture, that God is a rock. God is the rock of my salvation. And when we say that God is a rock, there are some ways in which God's steadfastness and, 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 and a firmness is rock-like. But there are an infinite number of ways that God is not like a rock. We say God is like a father, but there are more ways that God is not anything like a father. We say that God is light, but God is nothing like light. For every similarity one might find between the creature and the creator, between some aspect of nature and God, we must also acknowledge an even greater dissimilarity. Maybe that's why from this impenetrable darkness that came down and covered Mount Sinai, God declared that we were never to make a graven image of him. One of the big ten. God says, don't make an idol. Don't, don't carve anything into stone. Don't carve an image into the wood. Uh, there's no image that can contain me. I am apophatic. I am beyond images. Any image that we have of God, whether it's external or internal, any image that we have of God is already and automatically going to limit our experience of God. And instead of an image or a metaphor or even a name, God is present with his people, particularly in empty space. Other tribes and other people have graven images Idols carved out of wood or stone or bronze. But our God lives in empty space. Think about the rules that God gave to his people there at Mount Sinai. Among the requirements was uh, given this idea that they were to build a tabernacle, a mobile temple. And in that tabernacle, there was going to be an ark, the ark of the covenant, right? And this ark would have looked something like this table, a box, and it was carried with large poles fitted through fixtures on each corner, so nobody would actually touch the ark itself. need a couple of guys. Bob, come here, come here, come here, just a second. And if you can imagine... Um, Josh, you stand right here. Bob, you stand on that side. You're going to be our angels, right? The cherubim here, right? You woke up today saying, I hope somebody calls me the angel that I am. So you're angels. And the angels uh, were fitted on each end of this Ark of the Covenant. 
and their wings, put your arms out as though they're wings, were pointed forwards towards each other. Put your fingertips towards each other out over the mercy seat that covered the tabernacle. This is the Ark of the Covenant. And it's in this empty space where God lives. It's just empty space. It's not an image. It's not a picture. There's not a word. This is God's dwelling place. All right, angels, you can sit back down again. That's, that's how God reveals. That's how God says, I will be with you in that holy of holies. That's where I will live. Beyond a description, beyond a word, beyond an image. The New Testament offers its own voice, emphasizing the apophatic nature of God. In 1 Timothy 6.16, Paul writes that God lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. In Romans 11.33, Paul writes of God's ways of being uh, beyond all human comprehension. You're not smart enough to figure it out. No word can contain it. And in 1 Corinthians 13, there's a line that many of us miss where Paul says that now we only see in a dim, dark mirror. We have to wait to see face to face. Our comprehension, our thinking, and therefore our words and our images and our ideas cannot contain God. So why go on and on and on and on about God being beyond our words? Four things I want to suggest uh, we learn from the apophatic teachers. The first one is this. Uh, We are invited to give up control. The apophatic tradition of prayer invites us to give up control. Language is absolutely about power. When you can use words, you have power. So we have a a video clip. Nobody has to teach us that language is about power. Let's take a quick peek at this uh, video. You've seen this before, but I couldn't help myself. Volume, please. (laughs) 
Linda, 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 right? He understands. If I can say your name, if I can name you, if I can use my words, if I can come at you with a barrage of words, I'll get my cupcake. I'll get out of trouble. Right? And when God is beyond our words, and when God gives us a name that we don't understand and a word that we can't even say, we can't do that. Our power is taken away. Fundamentally, when Moses asks God for God's name, Moses is looking for power over God. Moses wants to be the one who will decide. Moses wants to be the one who has the power. Moses wants to be the one who gets to call the shots. What do I call you? What name do I call you? When I'm saying my incantations to get you to do what I want you to do, what is the name that will make you subject to me? What guarantees do I have that you can do this thing? Will I trust you or not? And God's response refuses to give Moses that power. And God refuses to give us that power. Instead of power, Moses is invited to empty himself and to trust God's power rather than his own. To let go of his expectations of what God should do or what God ought to be like. Because Moses won't be the one holding on to God reaching out with his language to control God and to manipulate the outcome. Moses won't be the one with the power. It will be God who is reaching out and holding on to Moses and through Moses to all of his people. So the apophatic tradition invites us to give up control. The second thing that we can see here is the power of listening. Uh, God has listened. There's listening all through this story, right? There's also, God says, I've listened. I've heard you. I've heard the cries of my people. I've been paying attention to what you're saying. I hear you. God has listened. Now Moses wants to know what he'll have to do to get the people to listen. In the next paragraph, God says, Pharaoh isn't going to listen at all. There's all of this interplay between listening and maybe I'll listen and I can't listen and I won't listen and will they listen. There's all kinds of drama around listening. And in all of that, there's one problem that is crystal clear, that stands right out. It says, God says, I will set you free. I will set you free. And your job is to listen. Listen to that promise. Let me hold on to you. If our words about God and to God are provisional and limited at best and misleading at worst, and on the other hand, if it is through listening that we are set free, then what is the invitation there when it comes to our prayer lives? How well do we listen in prayer? (laughs) One desert father named Abba Agathon If any of you are still looking for a baby name, by the way, Agathon is still up for grabs. Nobody's gotten there yet. Abba Agathon uh, lived in the uh, centuries just after the um, uh, the, the, uh, closing of the New Testament. 
And what, what he did was uh, he took a pebble and kept it in his mouth. And the tradition says that he kept it there for three years. I don't think his uh, dental professional would have appreciated that. But he kept a pebble in his mouth in order to teach himself reticence of speech. Slow to speak. Because he thought that was the path to spiritual growth, to the spiritual life. I suppose um, our version of that when I was little... um, when the sermon started, I would get a peppermint. And if I could make the peppermint last through the whole sermon, uh, it was considered a job well done. Just a challenge for anybody who wants to take that up. It's good. Communications uh, researchers tell us that human beings have a hard time listening. We don't need a scholar to tell us that. But they tell us that for most of us, we listen for just a handful of seconds to what another person is saying. And after a few seconds have gone by and we've heard enough, there's a little voice inside of our head that starts talking. And that little voice in our head starts saying things like, I disagree with that. No, I don't like that. If that was true, I would look bad. Some of you have that little voice going on in your head right now. We're convinced that words are the way out, that words will set us free. Um, but just maybe it's listening that sets us free. Jesus says in Matthew 6, when he's teaching his disciples to pray, he says, look, you don't have to keep heaping up words on top of each other. You don't have to keep using words. You don't have to use words to control God the way that the pagans use their words and their incantations to control their gods. Jesus says, your prayers aren't answered because of your words. Your prayers are answered because of a God who already knows what you need. Number three, when we do use our words to talk about God, uh, we do so with tremendous humility. With tremendous humility. Uh, We say things about God with caution and care. Uh, We make room for the things that others have to say about God. Our ideas and images of God are held uh, with a gentle and loose hand. Have you ever considered how much of your understanding of God comes from your first formation? Uh, Those earliest years in your home? Uh, When you were beginning to have encounters with authority figures and with power? and beginning to understand who you were in relation to those authorities. You have images of a father. You have impressions and feelings that have been plowed deeply into your spirit. Oftentimes, for many of us, before we even had words to describe what was happening, those ideas were already being formed, the images of God in our mind. And those ideas through our lifetime have become a lens and a filter and a frame that limit everything that we know and say about God. And there's a fire that doesn't consume. And there's a presence in impenetrable darkness that is pleading with us, pleading with us 
to know a God beyond our images and our ideas and our words. We use our words with humility. And then finally, very quickly, number four. The apophatic tradition invites us to love beyond understanding. This is a stretch for us. Mostly, when there's something that we don't understand, when there's something that we can't control, we fear it. And we use our words to try to regain control, to try to gain understanding. And the invitation from the bush and from the mountaintop is to love a God that we can't name, to love a God that we can't control, to love a God who is hidden and not understood and not confined by our words and images and expectations. But as we surrender ourselves to this great God in a still listening silence and in reverent humility, God comes through the silence, and he comes through that that empty space. And he promises us his presence. He says, I am holding you. And he takes our words on his tongue, even though they're insufficient and inadequate, and he speaks to us of his love. Surrender ourselves, empty ourselves. Come in silence. Come ready to have our picture of God reframed using our words with gentleness. And we find this God who loves us deeply. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, there is a irony this morning that we use a lot of words to say that you are beyond words. And yet we know that in this space you are present. You are ising. Thank you for the promise of your presence that is beyond what we can fathom, beyond what we can describe or explain, beyond what we can imagine. Lord, be with your people. We are listening to you.